Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content, but their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at behindthenife.org. Applications are due February 13th. Everybody, welcome back to Behind the Knife. This week, we're doing something a little different. We're doing a throwback episode with Dr. Kenneth Maddox. Uh, specifically, it was episode 17 that was published on July 7, 2015. It's been buried in our podcast episode, so many of you have never actually heard this. On the episode, we'll discuss trauma surgery, the Maddox maneuver, and retroperitoneal hematomas, and the ever-changing field of surgery. Enjoy. Okay, welcome to Behind the Knife. Uh, the surgery podcast. We have a great show for you today. I'm Jason. And I'm Kevin. And I'm Scott. And Kevin, what is on the OR schedule for today? Well, today we have Dr. Kenneth Maddox, the Dr. Maddox of Houston, Texas, who's going to talk to us about managing retroperitoneal hematomas. And for his tips and tricks, he's going to talk to us about the Maddox maneuver. Okay. And be sure you check us out on the website on www.behindthenife.org. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Behind the Knife. Uh, and uh, be sure to give us a review on on iTunes. It's also important that you guys subscribe. So it's not only it's great that you download, but it's also important that you hit that subscribe button. Go on the website, leave us some comments. If you have questions about the particular episode, we'll try to either get back in touch with you or get in touch with our expert again to try to address your questions. All right, so let's get started with our opening shot. With this episode, we decided to go without the opening shot. The opening shot is generally where we give you a a prelude to what we're going to learn about that day and give you a little background information. In this episode, we touch on such a variety of topics. Dr. Maddox, we feel that the interview stands alone. But of course, we would never miss our random fact of the day. All right. Well, everybody knows what that music means. It's time for our random fact of the day. So today's random fact, we're going to talk about the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague is a zoonic disease circulating mostly in fleas and small rodents. And it's one of three type of bacterial infections caused by what bacteria, Kevin? Yersinia pestis. Also known as Pastorella pestis. And now the bubonic plague derived from the Greek word buove. Jay, did I pronounce that correctly? No, probably not, Scott. Well, means groin and you get swollen lymph nodes these buboes that especially occur in the armpit or the groin in persons suffering from the bubonic plague so the bubonic plague or yersinia pestis is commonly believed kevin to be the cause of what black death which swept through europe in the 14th century this killed an estimated 25 million people or 30 to 60 percent of the european population but jay it could have been prevented with one simple act what was that well that's your common house cat Now, to understand why, you really have to understand the belief system in Europe at the time. The Catholic Church was the most powerful entity in Europe at the time. And the Catholic Church was obsessed with outlawing evil and anything that appeared to be evil. 
Well, for some reason, they decided to focus on cats. Because of their seductive nature and their ability to survive extraordinary circumstances, the uh, Catholic Church believed the... We're talking cats? Cats. Yes, seductive nature of cats. Believed them to be uh, the cohorts of Satan. So the Pope Gregory IX therefore declared cats evil. And as a result, thousands upon thousands of cats were eradicated throughout Europe, which in turn, led to an infestation with rats. And on rats were fleas, and within fleas were Yersinia pestis, and thus the spread of the bubonic plague. Well, it didn't end quite there yet, but a little-known follow-up fact is because the plague killed so many of the the working population, wages actually rose with the demand for labor. And some historians say to this day that this bubonic plague is the turning point for the European economic development. Interesting. And that has been your... Random fact of the day. We are very pleased today on Behind the Knife to have Dr. Ken Maddox, who is the Distinguished Service Professor of Baylor College of Medicine and Chief of Staff and Surgeon-in-Chief at Bentob Hospital, where he's been since 1973. Pretty much you name it, he's done it in trauma. He's been the past president of the American Association of Surgery and Trauma. And sir, uh, welcome to Behind the Knife, and thank you so much for taking the time out and joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. So. Sir, for those of you, the limited amount of people who may not know as much about your background, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and kind of how it took you to the point where you are today? Just a little bit of a brief background. I'm not sure many people know that you had the cardiothoracic fellowship. Just walk us through a little bit of that. (laughs) I was born in Arkansas in a town of 15 people. Uh, At age six months, uh, the work ran out for my dad, who was chopping cotton for 50 cents a day. And for the next four years, we were migrant farm workers in California. Wow. Uh, I later uh, went to El Paso, uh, Clovis, New Mexico, where I graduated from high school. Went to college uh, at Wayland Baptist College in Plainview, Texas, where I went on two scholarships. One, a ministerial scholarship to be a Baptist preacher and the second on a music scholarship where I was in their a cappella choir. Wow. In love with, uh, with uh, pre-med and science my first year, changed to pre-med, came to Baylor College of Medicine um, because it had a reputation of being one of the toughest medical schools in the state, in the country. And uh, uh, after my four years, I decided I thought like a surgeon, so I uh, looked at several residencies. Dr. DeBakey's residency was one of the toughest in the country with uh, rotations of uh, sometimes three months where you never left the ICU or the hospital. I had that rotation three times. And so I finished the residency and took a cardiothoracic residency of two years after that. And uh, during my career, probably half of what I've done is cardiothoracic surgery mm-hmm. and vascular surgery. If you go to Baylor, you're also trained as a vascular surgeon. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, uh, during the years, enough uh, exposure that I could have uh, taken as a gr- on the grandfather clause uh, the boards in emergency medicine, critical care, and vascular surgery. I personally chose not to take those and only was boarded in cardiothoracic mm-hmm. and uh, was assigned by Dr. DeBakey to Bentob Hospital. 
where I um, uh, have spent my entire career. I've looked at a bunch of jobs, um, all the way up to chairman, dean, chancellor, provost, and every time I come home, uh, I say, why would I ever want to leave a job that I really enjoy? Uh, so I've stayed here doing what I've done, and uh, um, and that's my career in a nutshell. Did uh, I have to ask? Are you baritone? Are you bass? Uh, what? And just I was just... I was a second bass. That's that's the low bass. <laughs> Do you still sing in uh, in the choirs and stuff? Oh, since uh, I switched. Uh, I uh, I actually don't sing any. I, I, I don't formally sing in a choir or uh, anything. I uh, except for my own enjoyment when I'm totally alone. Sir, so you were trained under Dr. Bakey in CT surgery. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? What it was like working for him? Uh, Dr. DeBakey um, uh, was one of those rare individuals that thinks sleep is a bad habit. And uh, I think he also thought eating is a bad habit. <laughs> and um, that uh, if you were on call every other day, you missed half of the work. And uh, quite honestly, I had some of the same genome. And, but he expected absolute uh, attention to detail, absolute uh, pursuit of excellence in everything you did and uh, expected that from the very first day you started. Lack of attention to detail was not an option. Making a mistake was not an option. It was sort of an old school, but it created a personal and a professional discipline. And uh, uh, most of the people who trained during those eras uh, uh, also enjoyed that kind of activity. And although there are all sorts of articles about burnout and stress, uh, stress is the pablum of productivity. And everybody who trained it during that time here ended up being um, great surgeons, dotted the world, and uh, we all sort of uh, enjoyed that environment. So, so there's been uh, probably, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand, if not a million surgeons throughout time. And uh, how does one go about getting a particular maneuver, an eponym named after them? Can you give us a little bit of history about that? Uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you present your data, and uh, I did not do that. Uh, right. uh, it was a not – we operated on a patient that uh, had had previous uh, – uh, laparotomies and his belly was frozen and it was obvious he had a huge retroperitoneal hematoma mm-hmm. was bleeding from something big way back there that we couldn't approach in the usual way so uh, I was alone no faculty uh, I'd just become a chief resident after my fourth year of residency and uh, I'd seen lots of car- uh, vascular surgery so I said to my assistant at the time, who happened to be a second-year urology resident, uh, Don, we've got to think up a new approach. We've got to figure out a new operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so we approached the aorta and the vena cava in a different way, laterally and posteriorly, and it worked. patient lived, and then we had a number of other cases. <clears throat> so since... The results were significantly different than things that had been reported up until that time. 
we decided to um, to uh, present it at national meetings, and people just started calling it uh, my maneuver. <laughs> Is that what you call it, sir? Do you say do my maneuver, or do you? <laughs> oh, I, I say medial rotation of the viscera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, sir, you've, you've edited and authored many textbooks, including uh, Top Knife uh, and Sabiston's. Can you just, just, just talk a little bit about, you know, all the work that goes into making these books and, and which of these texts are you, you most proud of and why? Uh, I, um, uh, first off, um, uh, writing a textbook or a chapter or even an editorial or even a discussion of a paper, is just like operating on a patient. It's attention to detail and uh, making sure that it's right, if, even if it requires rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. So it requires a persistence, and uh, uh, whether you're writing a chapter or you're editing someone else's chapter, or you're putting together a group of people, um, second class is not an option. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, you're not writing it to compromise, you're writing it because someone needs that at some later time to guide them in taking care of a patient that's a real patient. Right. And, you know, philosophically... Patients are owned by doctors, not hospitals, not insurance companies, not the government, not a managed care op uh, operation, not an accountable care uh, act. A patient seeks out a doctor, especially in surgery, as a go-to person that can take care of their cancer, their aneurysm, their coronary, or their trauma. And it's that reputation of being a go-to person in surgery that causes one to go to a textbook and is the go-to author to read in um, knowing what to do when uh, you need um, quick information on what works for this particular condition. Uh, although... Texts are written for a different reason, sometimes to be exhaustive on a subject, encyclopedic. Others are written to be very practical. And uh, Asher Hirschberg and I wrote the book Top Knife. It's now been translated into 10 foreign languages. Uh, and really no effort of our own. It just spontaneously happened around the world. Mm -hmm. And it continues to some 15 years later to sell at the same rate all over the world. Um, a little paperback, top knife, we wrote on Saturday mornings uh, with our feet up on the table in the coffee lounge, talking to each other, uh, writing down and recording just as we would talk to a resident at the end of a very tough case. Mm -hmm. We made a list of things that uh, challenged people in trauma, challenged people who wished to be the top knife, and, gave, and did not write any evidence base, did not write any references, did not include any uh, charts, did not uh, uh, go into detail on anything philosophically, but to say, um, 
what does a doc need to know at 2 a.m. in the morning when they have limited time and want to know how to expose, how do you get out of trouble, how do you fix it, and what are the pitfalls? And uh, we've had innumerable people uh, let us know that uh, uh, it was a very valuable text for them uh, at a time when they really needed it, both military and civilian uh, surgeons. Well, I can tell you that particular book made its way with me through my four deployments and is uh, very, <laughs> I'm very glad you took the time out on Saturday mornings uh, to be able to use that. So, um, you know, sir. Surgery and specifically trauma surgery is something that's ever evolving. New innovations, how to do it this way, non-operative trauma, operate, penetrate, all you know, different devices out there. What innovation? How do you decide to embrace a particular innovation as it goes to trauma, or how do you decide to maybe go away from what has been the dogma in a particular one? Is it uh, through experience, or I mean, how do you decide to, uh, to go about that business, especially in kind of the rapidly changing world of trauma surgery? Whether it is politics, whether it is surgery, whether it is uh, disaster management, um, things are based. Whether it's 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 uh, it's the economic world, you, you base decisions on change on data, mm -hmm. data, data, data. Uh, Fifty percent of the operations we now do as surgeons did not exist when I was a resident. Mm -hmm. 50% of what I was taught as gospel no longer exists, and we changed because of data. If we look at a lot of cancer treatment now, if we look at a lot of peripheral vascular treatment, if we look at a lot of cardiologic treatment, and we look very hard at the data, a lot of the data is class four and five information that is really expert opinion that doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, it begs to be changed. So one asks the question, how do I construct an evaluation on this incomplete information that's out there and um, make a change? Right now, let's just take, for example, pulmonary embolism. The ICD-9 code for the tiny little clots that are out in the periphery and the clots that are central uh, have the same ICD-9 code, but one is caused by thromboembolic phenomenon, probably from the cava and the iliac veins, and the others are caused by low flow. And the, the, the peripheral ones probably don't need any Coumadin. They don't need any... Um, uh, any special treatment, maybe not even any special diagnostic approach. Mm -hmm. However, we treat them the same because the analysis has been the same because the people doing the writing haven't separated out the two etiologies. Right. So every paper I pulled on pulmonary emboli, including those from the American College of Chest Physician guidelines, have been based on spurious information. No data so we continue to treat in the dark. Mm -hmm. So to make a change, you get data. You have the courage to look at your data. I've recently been looking at some data on uh, 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 limb ischemia and peripheral vascular disease. And probably regardless of what we do, 
the functional result a year later doesn't make any difference more than the pathology in the patient that we're looking at. Although there's a lot of articles on endovascular medicine, uh, peripheral uh, uh, bypasses, uh, and a lot of emotion put into it, but not a lot of hard data. Mm-hmm. Well, how do we develop hard data in trauma? How do we develop hard data in uh, uh, EMS, in emergency medicine? Do we really need a backboard? Do we really need a cervical collar? Uh, uh, are the new devices for intubation really that much better than the old devices? Um, and on and on and on. The courage to ask a question that is against the establishment mm-hmm. and then develop the data is something that every resident faces. And oftentimes, by the time a resident goes into practice, already says, well, it's really not worth it to um, continue against the grain so that we continue to do things the same way we've done them for a long period of time, and now the new treatments actually maybe increase the complication. I'm concerned right now about uh, robotic surgery, and uh, is it worth the cost, and are we creating more complications? I'm concerned about the new Reboa, the balloon in the aorta. If we don't control it very tightly for who does it and where it's done and what time it's done, we're going to hurt some people mm-hmm. uh, because we don't have the courage to say, what are we really trying to do with this new device? One might say the same thing about the electronic medical record. There are some wonderful things about the electronic medical record, but there are really some headaches too. And we, in most IT departments uh, and most insurance companies, we're, we're afraid to ask the real hard question about is this trip necessary and how can we modify this trip to make it a pleasant trip? Sort of all the things I'm saying is that the joy of learning is part of this data analysis and um, we make changes better for society, better for our craft because we have the courage to fail. Sir, speaking of data, there's some new uh, data out, um, out of Houston by John Holcomb about the one-to-one-to-one transfusion ratios. Uh, Are you guys embracing that strategy? Uh, We were using it long before John Holcomb even published it. I think that's where he learned it, when he rotated with us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, uh, We we actually uh, went away from crystalloids years and years ago and tried to replicate what uh, the unit of blood was when it was whole blood. Um, and whether you're using one-to-one-to-one or you're using whole blood as they were using uh, both at Memorial Hermann and in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, the results are better, and the coagulopathy of trauma basically goes away when you use whole blood or one-to-one-to-one and you stop using crystalloids. So... uh, uh, there are many places in the country that are still using bolus trials of crystalloid, and uh, that practice uh, has been shown really uh, to hurt experimental animals and people. 
So I'd like to go back real quick to what you talked about in terms of questioning dogma and embracing change. Uh, when you're a little bit more senior in career, uh, that that that's maybe a little bit easier. What would you say to the residents and people early on in their careers when maybe some of the questions or some of the findings they may have may challenge that dogma and may lead us to different directions? And politically, that may not be the best maneuver in their career. What, what advice would you give them to explore that side of it? <laughs> that's easy. <laughs> Uh, there's an old shogun uh, king or captain from years ago, I forget his name, that said, uh, go to the heart of danger and there you find safety. The young surgeon who's going to be a leader needs to have the courage to fail and the courage to go to the heart of danger and find the safety. If you always work at the edges and you don't have the courage to fail, you'll be stuck in a rut all your life. And a rut is another word for a, a grave with both ends kicked out. <laughs> and um, I, I, as a second-year resident, was saying to Dr. DeBakey, this new artificial valve doesn't work because it's hemolyzing and it's giving people renal failure. And he said, well, show me the data. Uh, even those people who you have fear might kill you, if you embarrass them, there's ways to professionally ask a scientific question. Right. Learning how to do that is part of growing up. If you want to be wimpy and uh, mediocre, uh, that's easy. And, you know, uh, but if you want to be a leader and make change and do the best for your patients, you've got to say, uh, this is right, this is wrong. When I started my residency, there was never a midline incision made in Houston, Texas. They were all paramedian, closed with interrupted fine silk, just like Halstead did. Uh, and yet, Nobody in town knows how to do a paramedian incision now to get into the belly. All right, sir. Now it's time for um, what we call the dissection of the day. And this is a, a segment of the, of the podcast where we delve more in depth about a particular topic. And since we have you with us, we thought we would talk about the management of a retroperitoneal hematoma. So just starting off, I was wondering if you could just walk us through your initial approach when you first approach a patient. What kind of patient's present like this? How do they present? And what's initially going through your head when you approach these patients? Well, <clears throat> uh, most retroperitoneal hematomas come from uh, uh, either a ruptured aneurysm uh, or, um, or a penetrating trauma, rarely with blunt trauma. In a child, a skateboard uh, may produce a blunt injury to the aorta uh, the retroperitoneal hematoma is relatively small. So I first am thinking uh, of what's described to me by the paramedic, uh, either telemetered or as they arrive. I don't want a lot of information. And if the patient has a blood pressure of 70 and I feel a peripheral pulse and their belly's a bit distended, uh, I am thinking, uh, and it's a penetrating trauma, and it's penetrating to the abdomen, I often will go from the ambulance dock to the operating room uh, 
because the emergency room has no function at that point except to wave to the patient as they go from the ambulance to the place of definitive care. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that can occur in the emergency room that's going to alter my treatment or make the patient better. There's a lot of things that can be done that's going to make them worse. So I don't need a CT. I don't need an ultrasound. They're hypotensive. They have a peripheral pulse. Their belly's distended. They have an etiology. I got to go look. And uh, so I don't tarry around uh, with a lot of diagnostic tests. Sometimes they're a lower code and uh, a workup has been done and God forbid for penetrating trauma, a CT of the abdomen has been done. Probably in the United States, in every hospital that hears this, this uh, 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 podcast, 95 to 98% of all CTs do not alter decision-making, but do produce a lot of radiation. And right now, that is a dogma created by uh, both radiology, emergency medicine, and now even, God forbid, surgeons, that is not based upon fact. Mm -hmm. uh, for all the way from appendicitis, uh, uh, all the way up to uh, various trauma. So we're, we're scanning people till they glow. But if it has been done, I'll look at it. And I may see a retroperitoneal hematoma. And if I see a retroperitoneal hematoma, I at that point am classifying it. Is it central? Is it peripheral? Is it pelvic? And then that helps me make decisions on what I'm going to do when I get in the belly. If I don't have a CT, as soon as I open the belly, uh, then I'm uh, asking basically two questions. Is it contained? And if it's not, then I have to do other things. Or second, uh, is it central? Is it lateral? Is it pelvic? And those two decisions uh, can be made in nanoseconds. Mm -hmm. Nanoseconds. What does it take in the belly? You know, it's not to take more than 12, 15 seconds to make a midline incision, not hurt anything, and then look and make a decision and then decide what to do next. Um, and uh, so uh, whether it's looking at a CT, whether it's extrapolating from the, from the trajectory of the bullet, or whether it's opening the belly and look, uh, I try to keep it very simple. Uh, now, realize there are probably... 12 to 1,500 uh, decision nodes that are made reflexly uh, initially. So, uh, you know, most residents who are out there and, you know, read about the textbooks that talk about, you know, penetrating, explore, bunt, bunt, just wait, and then talking about expanding or not expanding. You talked about decisions in terms of that, that, that thin slicing. You see something, you, um, you know, you're able to make a decision. How much of an expanding hematoma, over what time course, for those who are not as familiar with this, when they talk about an expanding hematoma and a retroperitoneal hematoma, how quickly does this occur and how much does that impact your judgment? I, I don't use the word expanding hematoma because I, I think that's a wimpy term. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're that long in the belly before you make an incision, I mean, before you make a decision to, um, to see that a hematoma is getting bigger in front of your eyes, uh, you've been there too long. Uh, and, uh, I make a decision literally within the first 60 seconds 
about whether we're going to do something advanced or, or not, uh, based upon its size, its color, its location. Uh, but indeed, if you've been there a while, the anesthesiologists and emergency physicians have given them a lot of crystalloid. You've created an iatrogenic coagulopathy. Yeah, a hematoma that was contained is now going to expand uh, because you've sliced the clot from, you've popped the clot from elevating the blood pressure uh, and uh, diluted out all the platelets. Uh, and plasma that fibrinogen and all the other clotting factors that you have because of your iatrogenic uh, uh, fetish of uh, bowing to the shrine of crystalloids. So uh, uh, expanding hematoma is not a term I use mm -hmm. because I don't use that in my in my algorithm. However, if it is expanding, you better get back there and do something. Mm -hmm because you're not going to have much time because they're already coagulopathic. And that person, if you've been there 15, 20 minutes, um, is going to have a decreased chance of survival than if you just got on with your business. Now, you don't get on with your business because you haven't really gone through this in your mind. You haven't forced yourself to in the lab, in the cadaver lab, and in previous patients gone through all the steps of how you're going to get control when there's nobody else around but you and that patient. So uh, some people wait around and fiddle around because they're fearful. Mm -hmm. There is really no reason under God's heaven that any surgeon trained in 2015 ought to be fearful of anything, especially blood vessels. The, how long did it take you, and how did you go about changing the practice patterns of the the ER docs, the paramedics, to not just bolus the two liters, allow that permissive hypotension until, hypotension until you get control? How did you go about getting that change in practice? Well, we did uh, several studies and published them. The first was with mass pants. We weren't using mass pants. The rest of the world was, and our, our results were actually better than... Um, the other trauma centers. So we said, well, we can even get better if we use mast. Uh, but there was differences of opinion. I must tell you, I helped develop mast when I was in the army and was partially responsible for their first going to Vietnam to be tested in that few numbers of people. Mm -hmm. And indeed, they did raise the blood pressure. So we did a prospective randomized trial of mass pants and showed that m increasing the blood pressure, putting on the mast actually increased in a higher mortality. That was with mast. So we sat back and we said, what the hell is going on here? So we did another study with hypertonic saline and showed that increasing the blood pressure just with the addition of uh, anything increased the mortality. So we said, my goodness, what have we got here? So we went to anesthesia, we went to emergency, well, we did not have emergency medicine then. Surgery ran the ER. And we went to the paramedics and we said, we need to study this. And they said, we need to study this. So on a randomized basis, we uh, took hypotensive patients beneath the pressure of 90 
and we gave half of them the usual standard treatment in the country. And the other, we gave nothing, no crystalloid at all, until we had operative control of bleeding in the operating room. Guess what? Those that we did not give any crystalloid to um, had a better survival. Mm -hmm. The last half of that study, we had trouble randomize people to the other group because the paramedics, although we hadn't published it and hadn't told them, had already independently decided when you don't give fluids, they do better. Mm -hmm. They were the first to convert. <laughs> the anesthesiologists were the second. And uh, so uh, uh, we've discovered that now that we don't use crystalloids in the ambulance in the emergency room, we don't have the same number of people who are eligible for hypotensive studies that we used to have because they auto-regulate with no fluid, no resuscitation. They were hypotensive in the field, but by the time they get to the hospital, they stabilize just above 90. And if 90 is our entry criteria, it takes us months and months to get enough people to study. And we don't know where all these people in hypotensive resuscitation studies around the country uh, actually come from unless they're iatrogenically popping the clot with crystalloids in the ambulance and in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. Oh, you convince people by their participating in the, own, their, in the collection of the data. They become your best champions. Right, right. Excellent. Uh, speaking of, you know, things that uh, in this day and age, uh, surgeons shouldn't be afraid of, but uh, often in the operating room, it does it does incite uh, some uneasiness, is the, the troublesome pelvic bleeding. Uh, when you get into bleeding in the pelvis or you have a hematoma in the pelvis, uh, could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, maneuvers or techniques for, for how you deal with that, uh, you know, depending on what type of bleeding it is and how to control that? I, I must admit that we, like every trauma center, lose our share of bad open pelvic fractures or unstable pelvic fractures. Uh, I, I think we don't have all the right answers there, mm -hmm. and the new REBOA may offer some information. Um, I... Um, we, we as well as others, resuscitate, including one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one, and our endpoint of resuscitation is often an elevated blood pressure nearing the pre-injury blood pressure. And in order to achieve that, with mainly now venous bleeding in the pelvis, mm -hmm. we increase the venous pressure. I I still am very unimpressed with the arteriograms with a little bit of wimpy bleeding that we still, like everybody else, embolize and um, uh, say that that really is helping the patient. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Uh, but we haven't ever looked at the venous pressure. We haven't, uh, and we have added in some institutions pelvic packing but I think now use of not a total occlusion uh, aortic balloon, but maybe partially occlusion, pelvic uh, packing, and intraoperative by the surgeon embolization 
of both veins and arteries that are bleeding needs to be part of the armamentarium of all surgical residents and future surgeons. Using not a hybrid suite, but a simple C-arm that orthopods have worked with for years. I personally think unless we put that into the skill set and educational uh, dancing card of surgeons of the future, we will be doing society a, um, uh, a disservice. So I, I think uh, the, surgical, the vascular gatekeeper of today's world in the future is not going to be the vascular surgeon or the cardiologist or the interventional radiologist, all of whom are not in the hospital during the time of need, right. but it's going to be the acute care surgeon. Sir, have the vascular surgeons at your hospital bought into this training method, and are they the ones responsible for training your residents in this, or are you guys still working on, on that? Yes. Yeah, they're, they're the ones who have set up the vascular cart, who are happy to train us, and uh, uh, not everyone uh, is wanting to be trained. Unfortunately, we have created a new world of surgeons who wish to be single organ surgeons, breast, colon, foregut, hepatobiliary, transplant, and they don't want to think about anything else even during their training. Uh, I think the, the singular most sought-after job in America in the, ne- in the future is going to be the go-to surgeon in the communities across America that uh, need a general surgeon, an acute care surgeon, who takes care of those things that no one else is really uh, courageous enough to take on mm-hmm. to hurt people. Uh, as we project to the future, it's those towns of 50,000 and lower that uh, make up the bulk of America that don't have the opportunity to transfer people for a variety of reasons, including cost, including government insurance, that's going to need a go-to physician who takes care of them during their time of need. In my view, that's the acute care surgeon, whatever that person morphs into being. And that person is not going to be afraid of blood vessels, is not going to be afraid of uh, a thoracotomy, is not going to be afraid of a decortication, is going to be trained to do those things and trained well uh, in uh, training programs across the country. Now, that's another new paradigm change that uh, the biggest demand for is is coming from, guess who? The current residents. Mm -hmm. Guess who? the young surgeons out in the community. We ought to listen to that plea for help us get there. So you've already touched on it a little bit, but can you take us through the situation and when you consider uh, catheter-based control of these retroperitoneal hematomas? Over that, that's over open approach. How do you make that decision between whether or not to to approach it uh, vascularly or or open? Um. I, um, I'm still in evolution, and I don't know the right answer to your question, but here's what I'd recommend. I'd recommend that the groin be um, prepped out in the kind of cases we've just talked about. Mm-hmm. Hypotensive, belly descended, um, and now you're in the operating room beginning to open. 
if you see now a retroperitoneal hematoma way back there, especially in the upper abdomen, or you get in and you see a pelvic fracture, uh, fracture uh, and a big uh, pelvic hematoma, don't open it. Don't open either of them, but put in a sheath in the groin, cut down in the femoral artery, and uh, uh, the sheaths are very easy to put in. And uh, Reboa is the new name for any one of about five different balloons that go all the way back into the 1950s uh, that were, have been used, some more successful than others, um, but it's not a new technology. Uh, now, I would recommend that a hybrid approach be inserted in the aorta and inflated in or, be, below the, uh, uh, or, or about where you think the injury is, but preserving as much mesenteric flow as possible. At the same time as a vascular surgeon is called, and then one proceeds to take care of what else is going on in the belly, uh, assessing perfusion, assessing pulses, and then um, bring the CRM in. And if then the, the either the interventional radiologist or the surgeon arrives, it may be decided to inflate a, uh, a stented graft in the area of the injury, which may then obliterate the renal pulse and even the mesenteric pulse. At that time, either a fenestration can be made or a bypass can be made, and the general surgeon ought to be able to do both of those. Very bluntly, ought to be able to. The, those are less of a challenge than a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. It requires less skill than a laparoscopic ap appendectomy. And yet surgeons manipulate those toys every day. Mm -hmm. And then revascularize the mesentery, revascularize the kidney, go home. Uh, case is over. And if you do, do do a medial rotation, you lose six units of blood just getting back there. With the technique I've just described, which has not become part of anyone's uh, uh, formal approaches, except a few hospitals in Brazil that's been very successful. <laughs> uh, you reduce that blood loss to almost nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an opportunity, an opportunity for someone to change the course of mankind. So, sir, now it's time for our segment called Tips and Tricks, and this is where we have our experts walk us through those helpful hints that can get our listeners out of these sticky situations. So we would be amiss if you didn't walk us through your medial visceral rotation, how you get access, uh, and how you control approximately, assuming you have, uh, have to perform that maneuver. Can you walk us through that? Okay. Uh, let me ask you a question first. Yeah. Am I going to be the surgeon or am I going to be an assistant to a senior resident? Let's have you be the surgeon. Okay. Uh, so if I'm a surgeon, I open the belly from the left side, not the right side. 
and I put my assistant over on the right side of the belly, uh, thinking they're going to do a big case. <laughs> I reached my left hand into the belly as soon as any incision, as they've made just a portion of the incision, and I reach up and I grab the aorta at the hiatus. Uh, I've now seen a large retroperitoneal hematoma, which may or may not be bleeding freely into the peritoneum. I have trained myself over the years to calibrate the blood pressure or the, or the blood volume based upon the contour of the pulse and the aorta. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, if that pulse is barely palpable, I will hold it and I will tell the anesthesiologist, um, I'm going to hold this aorta till you play catch up. Mm -hmm. uh, get your blood in the room. We're not going to lose any blood here. Uh, I got my hand on it. And I'll take uh, uh, either the assistant's hand or my other hand and just sort of gently lean on the hematoma. Uh, at that point, uh, in the future, I might have the assistant do a cut down in the left groin uh, and uh, expose the femoral artery to place a sheath. Uh, but today we're not going to do that because you're asking me how do I how do I expose the aorta? Absolutely. Once once I feel that the pulsations are uh, uh, pretty good, I meanwhile might have taken my fingers and gone alongside the esophagus and dissected out an area I can slip in a vascular clamp on the aorta. More often than not, I, uh, I will not. Uh, I will then um, ask the surgeon on the right side of the table mm -hmm. to change hands with me and hold the aorta uh, while I, I look over on the left side lateral to the kidney, lateral to the spleen, and by this time I will have eviscerated the guts, the colon, over to the right that are there. Um, in looking at the left side, if there's a retroperitoneal hematoma from the aorta, it will already have done its dissection inside Gerota's fascia. And as you remember, Gerota's fascia becomes transversalis fascia at the lateral side uh, of the kidney and in the rest of the abdominal wall. The dissection at the line of toth has already been made for you. And with a tiny little nick with your finger, uh, you're already back there. You don't need to cut. You don't need to bovie. Um, and uh, just with a little swing of the fingers, uh, you literally, within seconds, are into that plane, and uh, uh, the hematoma is in the tissues, but you stay on top of the psoas muscle, mm -hmm. top of the psoas muscle. I used to teach just like you're doing a sympathectomy, but since no one does a lumbar sympathectomy anymore, they think I'm crazy and don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but they stay on top of the psoas muscle, go lateral to the kidney, lateral to the spleen, stay away from the spleen, stay away from the colon, go behind the colon, and it literally takes about 20 to 30 seconds, and you've exposed from the hiatus of the diaphragm uh, all the way down to the uh, iliacs. I ask 
the surgeon now to place his two hands in that plane and pull that entire group of viscera to him. Mm-hmm. This now is kidney, spleen, left colon, tail of pancreas, uh, the uh, ligament of trites, and uh, I say if anything is hanging up, just wiggle your fingers, and it comes apart very easy. Mm-hmm. And then I look down and say, oh, oh, goodness, your hands are all tied up. Let me help you. And I'll get a towel and put it over all that viscera and put two will-hour retractors under it and say, hold this for a second. So now the guy on the right-hand side of the table has both hands filled with will-hour retractors, and I'm looking at the esophageal hiatus. I cut the left cura of the diaphragm, cut out the... um, Onto the dia- uh, onto the diaphragm, and I can place a curved uh, vascular clamp uh, all the way up as high as T6. Mm-hmm. Uh, I usually don't go that high unless the injury is in the distal thoracic aorta. I will approach a distal thoracic aortic gunshot wound by this same approach. Mm-hmm. It's easier than going in the chest. Uh, I will place a vascular clamp quite close to the hole both above and below. I can see it. It's right there in front of me. I will have now moved all of that thick nervous tissue from the greater, middle, and lesser splanchnic nerves that form the uh, celiac plexus. I've moved them over now uh, to the right. And I can see the aorta quite well. I see the renal artery curved up. And I see exactly where the injury is, and I'm thinking, do I, do, do I fix this primarily, or do I put in a graft? And if I'm going to put in a graft, I, I, I will have asked for uh, a graft to put in. I, I personally like a knitted graft. It's harder and harder to get a knitted graft that's not been processed with something. I don't like a woven graft. I don't like PTFE. Or if I'm planning to close it primarily, I'll get a 4-0 suture, proline suture, polypropylene suture, on a big needle and plan to uh, triangulate it and close it. And by a running suture, you can close that in three to five minutes. Uh, and then you're done. If you put in a graft, you've got two suture lines, so you've got 10 minutes or so uh, for the two suture lines. But if you set it up... Uh, the resident can sew it as fast as I can sew it. And with the clamps on, I can put a second-year resident, first-year resident, a nurse on the retractors. Now, the reason I chose the left-hand side of the table is that you've got to hold the guts over to the right, and the person in that position ties up that position. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the left-hand side, you can say to that person over there, gee, you can't see good. You can't hold good, I mean, you're holding, you can't sew good, I'm going to have to fix this. So you have all the fun of doing the fixing. Uh, so if you're going to do the surgery, uh, position yourself on the left-hand side. Uh, if I'm having this, the resident fix it now, I'll change sides with him and I'll hold the guts and with one hand and put somebody on a retractor and then follow him with uh, the other hand. Um it shouldn't take that long. If it takes a long time to do the dissection, the hematoma came from something else. Mm-hmm. The kidney, the psoas muscle, 
the key is that if the dissection is easy, you've got an aortic injury. Mm-hmm. A cable injury will not do the dissection uh, for you. Mm-hmm. So uh, if the, that dissection hasn't been made, you might think, oh, I have a cable injury that causes retroperitoneal hematoma. Uh, and you're really looking with this maneuver to fix the uh, aorta. Okay. Fantastic. That's enough. <laughs> yeah. Great, sir. Now we're going to move into our final five quick five quick questions. The first one is, uh, what was the last song that was played on your iPod or iPhone, and do you play music in the operating room? The last song, I think, was something I picked up uh, uh, from Buddha, Buddha Bar, uh, <laughs> which is a band uh, I think plays in Dubai, and it was sort of... Uh, uh, erotic, uh, strange uh, music from that part of the world. Uh, and I, I was listening to it as much out of curiosity. Uh, I, um, uh, I don't operate that much anymore, but I often would have music, and uh, I would let uh, whoever I was with select whether it would be uh, country and western, country, uh, classical, uh, opera, and uh, accept if I was doing something like a coronary or a, 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 an aortic valve or a double valve or a portal cable shunt, um, those uh, I would uh, uh, I'd turn the music off for maximal con- concentration. Mm-hmm. Surgeons have the same uh, uh, psychodynamic scores on... Uh, examinations as do musicians and clergymen. They also, surgeons, whether they know it or not, hear errors in music. So if there's someone who is flat or sharp or hits a wrong note or a wrong timing, subconsciously they notice it. (laughs) So during those times of maximum concentration, I, I would turn any music off. And then, as soon as we're through with that, you can turn on any music you want, especially if it stimulates uh, normal sinus rhythm. <laughs> uh, number two, do you have any uh, hidden talents, any hobbies or interests outside of the OR that you'd be willing to share with us? I like to travel. I like to read. I try to read a novel a week. Um, I, I like uh, the mystery of the uh, Internet. I like medical politics and... Uh, uh, even politics of this country and other countries. I like uh, comparative religions on what drives people this century and previous centuries uh, uh, to find their way to truth and to God and to express the things that they don't know. Uh, I, I used to like to fish. I, um, um, I don't golf. I uh, don't play tennis. Um, I don't own an airplane. I don't own a boat. <laughs> that leads us into number three. Can you tell us about a memorable or perhaps favorite vacation or trip that you've been on? One of them, probably a, a, a very favorite trip was uh, one which occurred by serendipity. Uh, my wife drugged me to uh, some... Uh, uh, fundraising event uh, that uh, 
think it was Medical Bridges, where we put together packets to send stuff to other countries uh, that needed medical equipment. Um, and uh, uh, they had all sorts of things they sold, and they had at one point a uh, open um, auction. And I was busy talking to my table mate that happened to be the uh, uh, consulate from uh, uh, from uh, Ecuador. And uh, this was, I usually don't bid on these things. My wife grabbed my sleeve and my tux and said, bid, bid. And I said, uh, how much? She said, a thousand. I said, a thousand. So I yelled it out <laughs> and had no idea what I was bidding on. Well, the bidding went up and went up, and finally it was closed, and uh, uh, I won one of two trips uh, that were given that night uh, for two, so a trip for four to uh, to Galapagos Islands. Right. Galapagos is, is owned by Ecuador, and the guy who gave the tickets happened to be the guy who was sitting beside me. So uh, for $2,500, two of us, went for a week to Galapagos, a trip which normally is five, six, seven thousand dollars a piece, and uh, uh, had a great time in a very interesting place in the world. I'd recommend Galapagos to anybody. What was the most interesting animal you saw there, or thing? Uh, I found them all fascinating. Mm -hmm. The birds were fascinating. Uh, the the uh, 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 the albatrosses uh, mate for a lifetime and come and lay one egg there uh, uh, every year or so. Uh, the uh, the evolution of the two iguanas, uh, the marine iguanas and then the desert iguana, uh, are now are totally different but live in the same habitat. Ugly as sin. Uh, <laughs> The um, uh, the big turtles uh, on multiple um, islands are different depending upon uh, uh, how high they had to stretch for food uh, in order to eat. Uh, and they're, they're now those giant tortoise, not turtles, giant tortoise. Uh, perhaps those three were the most fascinating. But I didn't see them. I read about the finches that Darwin uh, came across, and the different beaks of the finches uh, was fascinating. Hmm. Sir, if you did not become a surgeon, what career choice would you have gone into? I don't know. There was multiple. I, I really loved uh, natural history taxonomy. I collected rattlesnakes uh, and other uh, things in uh, North Texas. Uh, I would have enjoyed um, going into government. I would have enjoyed uh, uh, being in the State Department, in the CIA. Uh, I, uh, international diplomacy. Um, I would have enjoyed being uh, a writer of uh, mystery stories. Um, I, would have, I would have enjoyed a lot of things. All right, last one. If you could go back in time and, and meet yourself on your first day of internship, what uh, piece of advice would you give yourself? Don't ever take training in a country that forces you to limit your time in the hospital with patients to 80 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, sir, uh, 
thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. It is, uh, this has been awesome. And uh, I know uh, that we have learned a ton and uh, very interesting insights. And we hope that one day you'll be uh, willing to join us back here again. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, sir. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.